Hi again, listeners, and thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to support us, then please do think about subscribing. Every little helps. So whoever you're listening, give us a star rating and a like, or hit subscribe to get news on when the next shiny brand new episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast lands. But for now, please do enjoy the show. And welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am, of course, Alex Sargent. And I am, of course, Chris Holliday. And we're recording remotely here today again for our latest Feel Good Fan Anim episode, which you have selected through vigorous conversation on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And I'm happy to reveal that we'll be talking about Disney's Hercules. Yeah, this is an interesting one because it seems like people's feel good fan anime. They're sort of gravitating towards um, a particular set of films. And it's, it's Disney that, and certainly Disney's animated films of the 1990s and early 2000s that seems to be a very specific period of time where people are finding their feel good fan anime. Yeah, it's, I don't know if it's a generational thing or a um, uh, or just there's something about these movies that because they're not often talked about a lot, that people want them to be talked about a lot. So that's um, it's an interesting process. I mean, it was fun to revisit it. Um, we've actually already done the podcast. Um, we did it with our special guest, um, Edith Hall, Professor Edith Hall from King's College London. Um, she works in the classics department there, and she's published on a wide range of, of uh, topics on ancient Greek literature and history and society and philosophy. Um, she's a broadcaster. She's a, a, academic public, a published academic. Um, she does all kinds of things all over the world. Um, and we were lucky to chat with her. Um, however, we were so enthusiastic to chat to her that we basically just kind of started mid-conversation rather than do a proper introduction. Hence why we're now doing this. Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, this is us now uh, reframing the conversation, um, but certainly introducing, um, we started talking about the film, uh, and then we sort of handed over to Edith, uh, and she'll kind of take it from there. Yeah, so sit back, listen, hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you on the next episode. Keep those feel good fan anim um, suggestions coming in. You can use the hashtag feel good fan anim on Twitter, but also just at us on various social media. We'd be delighted to receive more suggestions, and we'll do some more in the future. Reliving it in a different way because um, actually I've never, I don't think, lectured or written on this one. I have written on on other films, you know, with classical references. But my t- our two kids, who are now nineteen and twenty one, about sixteen, seventeen years ago, it was their very, very favourite of all the Disney. They did just love it, and um, so I watched it many, many times. Then I even took them to Disneyland Paris. And one of our great uh, dreams, this was when they were about eight and ten, was was to find a, a whole ride or something that was like going to Hades or up to Olympus. There wasn't a single thing. It actually didn't take off merchandise-wise, this one. Yeah, it's and a it's strange like, one, that. It is very strange. And my kids would have, you know, and it wasn't just because their mums are classicists. Normally that made no difference whatsoever. They didn't normally like these stuff. They just liked the film. They liked the plot. They liked the characters. They thought it was funny. Yeah. And um, so uh, for me, it's actually been rather a happy time to uh, re- remind me of what it was like having kids at that particular <laughs> age when when the world is still so fresh. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think that the um, 
the thing with merchandise, I had a note because the well, we'll talk about this in the podcast. Let's not give it all away. But the the fact that the film is like about merchandise and about celebrity, and I think that's really yeah, that's something. We not started recording then yet? Well, well, we have. I feel I feel um, I'm doing this on air. I feel like we could go with a soft opening with this one and just sort of okay. start from here and keep going, guys, because um, we've already created some gold. Why why waste it on just us? Um, so yeah, um, absolutely. It's a weird movie, isn't it? In the sense that I, I can remember seeing it and. Uh, loving the sort of the imaginative play. I, I think I was a bit obsessed with Greek myth when I was about a 10 year old. Yes. And I think I knew the obvious um, lack of faithfulness, but it never really bothered me because it was just I, what I liked was the um, new kind of world it created in its um, in its place um, and the sort of fun it has with it. Well, I think actually it, in, a, in a way that it is faithful because we you know, Hercules and Heracles, as the Greeks called him, was an extraordinarily popular character in their comic theatre, as well as their uh, tragic theatre. So there were these sort of dark plots about about um, going down to Hades and having numerous labours, uh, innumerable labours to, to, to have to um, um, perform in order to get freedom and so on. But there was also the buffoon uh, Heracles. We've got him in Aristophanes' Frogs. We've got him particularly in Euripides' Alcestis, where he rolls up to what's supposed to be a tragic wedding and what's supposed to be a tragedy and turns it into a sort of satyr play because he's drunk at the funeral and goes around sort of eating too much and basically knocking things over. Um, and at the end of the play, though, he goes and rescues rescues the, the dead lady Alcestis in that one. Um, so th- there is actually an ancient precedent for this sort of buffoon comedy uh Heracles, he's sort of just too big for his own body. Um, and, and I suspect, now I've read a bit about it this week, that, that the, the, the writers and directors had actually discovered that. They did an amazing amount of research. I mean, they went off mm. to Greece and Turkey, didn't they, one summer to find stuff? I think that um, that issue of kind of research actually is something that is, uh, you know, on the, on the part of the animators and the part of the, the Disney studio and, and making sure that there's a kind of fidelity or a degree of authenticity or something that they can... Um, I'm not going to say cynically spin, but certainly something that allows that because obviously this issue of sort of broader Disneyfication or the creative bargain that the Disney studio strikes with its source material, um, especially if you think about the two films that, well, the films that come either side of of Hercules. So Mulan, the year after, um, yeah. which I remember a lot of, of writing around that film was about how the how Disney sort of paid a quote kind of courtesy gesture to some of the um, traditions. Um, and then equally, the, the film before, which we'd done previously on the podcast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, yeah. which was sort of this break um, or shift for the studio towards a more sort of mature um, literary gothicism, whatever. So that sort of creative bargain that Disney often strikes with its source material I think becomes folded into the way that we think or the way that maybe the Disney animators the studio um, sells it's sort of look we went on an authentic trip and we did the, we did our research and this is the outcome of our um, this is the outcome of our um, labor essentially so that that and particularly in something you know in the case of of Hercules where there is this um, you know it's got a bit of a lineage I'll say that you know that it's really important maybe that the studio is is speaking to that um yeah to that that preservation of authenticity it's the visual quotation I mean what I would really like I mean I'm really a literature and philosophy sort of person but I do know quite a lot about ancient Greek vases and ancient Greek art and I would just love to watch it with an absolute expert on on those because I counted at least 20. <laughs> really well-known vase images you know ones that get recycled every time you have the olympics 
or every time you know you have um, some exhibition at the British Museum, it'll actually go on the poster. You know, really top, top, top. I mean, the particular quotations that's so nice is when Hercules accidentally breaks the Venus de Milo and breaks her arms off. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. we're told, oh, well, actually, that looks much better now. I mean, it's hilarious. Uh, in Alcmena and Amphitryon's actually quite impoverished cottage, you've got murals based on the ones in the palace at Knossos. I mean, without a doubt. And I counted at least 18 other uh, striking examples, including the ones of Heracles' own head and his profile, which are straight off ancient coins and so on. So the general public, I'm quite sure, had no idea about this. But I've got about 20 very loud belly laughs out of it as a classicist. And I love it when Disney does that, when it plays to a very sophisticated adult audience while also talking to small children. I, you know, I, I think it's genius. Yeah, well, that's if I remember, that's actually how the one of my first notes about the opening of the of the film is about artwork on the side of a vase or a bowl, I think it is. And because and, yeah. um, because the film sort of sets itself up as this particularly epic um, or kind of historical epic with a voiceover by Charlton Heston. Fun, I believe, yeah, I know um, it is. It's hilarious. That sort of narrates this world of uh, powerful gods and extraordinary heroes and then suddenly replaces that with... Um, you know, the muses that are talking on the side of a bowl. And equally, the fact that you have the, this sort of narration, I guess, which is replacing um, that storybook narrative, the, the image of the storybook that opens here. We have this kind of epic male voice that is uh, decreeing everything about about gods and heroes. And then it's sort of um, undercut by uh, this sort of exposition, if I remember, an expositional song that kind of just gives a backstory. And in about five minutes, tells you everything that you need to know and brings the... Um, the audience up yeah, to speed. It's, it's really wonderful. But you know, those um, ladies, the five muses, which are cut down from nine to make it seem like a, a much more authentic sort of Tamla Motown uh, backing group. But yeah. uh, they, they are all of them. I could actually point you to a vase where somebody had done some really detailed study of exactly how their hairstyle or their frock was configured. It's then given this Gerald scarf extra something because I didn't realise this until I went and researched it but um, last week. But the, uh, you know, I didn't know Gerald Scarf had actually produced about 700 original designs because they had noted that mm. this famous, famous, famous cartoonist often had, his characters had a look of uh, ancient Greek profiles and so on. They twigged that, that he just happened to like them and invited him to... to um, join in so it's this combination of the, the gerald scarf sharp nose sharp featured witty uh, outlines with these rich colors from the terracotta uh, vases where it's actually the red figure they use a very particular um you know fifth century style of athenian pottery but it works where, where the women get their dresses picked out in white but the basic skin color is actually the terracotta of of clay and then decided they could go as wild as they want on eye colour so people get you know purple eyes or blue eyes or green eyes or whatever but it's it's incredibly inventive I mean there are also wonderful literary quotations I mean I do love the fact that Megara and Her Hercules first date they he takes her to the theatre in Thebes and they see the Oedipus Rex <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and says, well, you know, I thought I had problems. That's a wisecracking about uh, 
ancient Greek literature is 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 very precious. And the um the opening sequence where where the soul singers essentially introduce this thing. I mean, it's not insignificant. I think that they're soul singers because essentially the film sets up what it's doing with ancient Greek there. Right? In that it's it's soul. It's this is soul. If soul music is a sort of you know um, entertaining reinvention of gospel. Um, and taking something that was um, deeply theological and making it deeply secular. This is sort of doing the same thing with ancient Greek myth, right? It's, um, oh, I see, it's going, yeah. let's have some fun, throw some prizes on it and, um, and, and, and play with, with the stuff, play with the rhythms, play with the beat, but, um, but do it in a very different context. And so I, I can't help yeah. feeling that it's sort of setting us up there for, for what is to come, almost anticipating any of the potential criticism that I'm delighted to hear you're actually sharing. If we, we, we were going to get, we thought we'd get a classicist on so that they could badmouth all its... Um... <laughs> oh, well, I will, I, I'll, I'll give you my reservations in, in <laughs> all in good time. Mm. But, vi- but visually, it's, uh, it is an absolute joy. And there are many, many other jokes. I mean, you have, you have you know, lots of things, which is actually Ovid. It's a Latin poet where, where nymphs suddenly get turned into trees, you know. And these are all going on in the background of the main plot where something is turning into a statue of a tree, which is actually a girl running away, which is, you know, Apollo and Daphne, th- th- this kind of thing. And you have to, you know, I think I'm, I only watched it through once in some detail, but uh, a couple of days ago, but I'd have to go back if I was actually, and stop on almost every, you know, 24th frame, you know, almost every second, if I was going to catch every single one of these um, illusions. So I think that some, they didn't have to do that to make money. At some point, they got taken away, carried away by their own love of this stuff. Absolutely. And it shows. Well, I was, uh, that opening, or the, the issue of the muses, I think, and the, the importance of narration here, and actually exactly what Alex is saying about this sort of way in which um, uh, soul mu- music is being reinvented, that idea of reinvention. I wonder mm. if that feeds into or, or is part of the film's sort of broader comedic style, given certainly after you have you have um, the Aladdin, Lion King, these, these sort of really popular uh, animated uh, features, then you have a sort of turn to history and, and quote-unquote serious films, I guess, in some ways. So Pocahontas, 1995, Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1996, which are are sort of, you know, they're comedies, but they're sort of straight tellings in lots of ways. This film then becomes about, okay, so we're going to do, we're going to do another sort of um, uh, myth, or we're going to do another familiar story, but we're going to foreground at the start, the importance that it's already a kind of mediation. So it's sort of folding the fact that Disney are telling this story. Um, it, It sort of becomes, the muses become a kind of surrogate, surrogate disney because they are that thing about you know you go girl this is how we're gonna tell it so you have the history then you have the way that this film's going to tell it and i feel like not that disney are necessarily inoculating themselves against potential criticism but there's certainly uh, is you know something interesting about what this film does with with narration and, and then kind of cuts in and out of narration so the muses reappear yeah. and tell story and then come back in and so i just wondered whether well, that's just like homer i mean homeric both homeric epics begin with muse tell me the story of of troy or muse tell me the story of odysseus and by having the epic the voice associated with epic cinema yeah. which is charlton heston um, and the epic motif of invoking the muse to kick you off right to get you going that's a very clever pairing in itself. As it happens, we, you know, there was a massive epic about Heracles where his 10 labours were all told. We just haven't got it. But I'm quite clear in my own mind that the, the, the uh, uh, creators of this film 
knew that the, these labors originally came from a great big archaic epic of the scale of the Iliad or the Odyssey. So just let's go back to the, it, well, if we can call it the original, although I'm conscious there is no original to, to, to originate from. <laughs> what, what, what's, what is the, the sort of, for listeners who aren't familiar, who probably only approach this through the Disney movie, what is the source text or source tale that is being adapted here to ask my impossible question of the week? Yeah. Okay. The, 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 the simple premise is that here is this uh, child who is half divine. He is the son of Zeus, but for various reasons has to spend his entire life on Earth. Um, and you can make either tragedy out of that, what happens if somebody who's got a very special status has got to try and live in, 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 in the human world, or you can make a comedy. And by and large, this film has opted for comedy. And then there are many, many endings to Her Hercules' life in, in ancient sources, but quite a few of them involve him sadly not making um, it to Olympus as a sort of living immortal and ending up being, the technical term is casterized. That means turns into a constellation so that you can actually sort of see him in the sky. And he's often given quite tragic deaths. So actually when at the end he decides not to join the Olympians, but he's going to live with his ordinary human girlfriend and be an ordinary, you know, human man and, and accept that he's going, that he's mortal, that he will die. In a sense, that's a nod back to the original story. Uh, there are other ways in which it has been monumentally changed. Uh, do you want me to talk about those now or later? Well, sure, let's do it now while, while we're there. Okay, well, the two ways it's been monumentally changed are about his actual birth identity, whose child he is. And the second is why he is suffering um, lots of ordeals and having to perform all these labours. So to do the first one first, in the actual Greek myth, Heracles means that he's connected with Hera. Hera is, in the film, his mother, and it's just a nice monogamous marriage between Zeus and Hera, and they have a lovely little baby who is divine but gets uh, stolen and adopted by these two mortals, Alcmena and Amphitryon, right? That's what's in the film. In all the ancient Greek myths, and this is always the same, He's actually a, a bastard that Zeus fathered on Altmina, um, and she got Amphitryon to bring up. And Hera, Zeus's wife, was so unbelievably furious about this adultery and the indignity of it, and jealous because she hadn't managed to produce an, a, a big, strong son on Olympus herself, that she cursed him and harassed him and harried him over the planet. And she got the guy called Eurystheus, who's a very unpleasant ancient Greek guy, to inflict all these dreadful labours on him and, and try to kill him off because she hated him so much. So that's a very, very mm. different premise, which involves adultery, adoption, <laughs> infidelity, cruelty, uh, dysfunctional family, wicked stepmother, revenge, spite, etc. All those bad emotions that we don't really get in uh the film, except we do, they're all put on Hades. Hades is the one who persecutes Hercules because he wants to be king of the gods. So that's the first difference. And the second is um, that we don't have even Eurystheus, the guy who did give, through Hera, was, impose all these labours on poor old Heracles, Hercules, uh, is completely deleted. And he and Hera are all rolled up into the figure of Hades. I suppose the third thing is, and even more important for those classicists who, who know the tragedies he's in, which are Sophocles' Women of Trachis and Euripides' Heracles Gone Mad, both of which also had versions in Latin by Seneca, 
is that he um, kills the wife called Megara and her three children in a fit of madness, right? Um, and nearly commits suicide afterwards. That's one of the most famous things. And he's actually an infanticidal father and, and, and abusive husband. And the other wife, who's actually called Deonera, who is the one that Megara weirdly is also based on in the film because she he rescued her from being raped by the centaur Nessus. Right. Uh, she kills him with a poisoned robe. It's a dreadful, dreadful end, however you do it. And it's always conflicted with the women. So to replace this dreadful, dreadful sex war ending and, and violent deaths of women, children and Hercules himself with the happy marriage, <laughs> it's just about as far as you can go in revisionism. Well, I was going to say part of that revisionism, though, I was, when I was watching it, it's sort of you know, Hades' relationship to Zeus. I was thinking kind of Scar and Mufasa from The Lion King. I was thinking about... Uh, Hades line about a hostile takeover and 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 you know it, in many ways it's sort of it, it, it is kind of cut cut to the same um notes as, as some of the kind of previous previous Disney films I actually Absolutely. I mean which is which make, which makes sense you know which makes sense given given perhaps the audience that uh that Disney is aiming for um obviously obviously we've got we've we've touched on the kind of classicist approach the animation approach I guess in terms of that bargain then, or that relationship between the two, is this where, Alex, is this where kind of fantasy, I mean, with your fantasy hat on, if we've got this sort of, you said about a source material, we've got we've got the story, we've got Disney's um, adaptation, is the space, that revisionist space between those two um, poles, is this, is this where fantasy kind of can intrude? Is this, where, is this where you are in between these two ideas? I, I guess it's where the sort of the imagine, imagine, the space of the imagination, uh, the space where the imagination can be appreciated in the movie. But it, actually, a lot of that sort of, I guess, the lazy way of describing what's happened to that original tale that Edith nicely surmised there is the Disneyfication process of fitting it to this template. Mm. But that template is, is actually sort of, you know, got um, waves and waves of sort of folkloric, convention in it and i i couldn't like you know there are beats in the movie for example where you know the sort of setup of hercules in this where he's um you know he's, he's meant to be killed by uh panic and pain the sort of two disney-esque henchmen of um Her of um hades um and then they sort of lie and pretend that they do but they don't it's very much you know the woodsman in snow white um it's very much sort of riffing on lots and lots of folkloric convention so what the i guess what the film is doing in terms of fantasy is it it's, it's is it's taking these iconographic features and it's mapping it onto a much more sort of um familiar narrative for for audiences in the in the 20th century at this time right rather than a familiar narrative for audiences in ancient Greece. i agree i agree in part but i think that there's two things i'd say about that one is I absolutely agree about The Lion King. I mean, when Hercules goes and sings his big song about I can last the distance, you know, that you have to have this song about I will make it one day in, in all these sort of Hollywood musicals. He does it on a rock just like the one that uh, the, the lion cub is held up on under the lion. I mean, that is a clear interfilmic reference. Mm -hmm. But you have plenty of my recollection of Snow White and... Um, Sleeping Beauty and those kinds of films is that the incredibly frightening Wicked Stepmother mm. was absolutely fine. I mean, they could have gone down that way. They clearly wrestled with that and decided that they were just going to evade all of that. Sure. And I think the influence there is from screwball comedy. You know, all this, this wisecracking, safe cast of wisecrackers. Yeah, yeah, and I and I guess I guess that riffing on that might be to do with what the studio is trying to do at the period, and that 
you know, the position of female characters in the Disney template is very much something that they're not quite sure how to renegotiate. You know, they've got, they've had the sort of wicked stepmother in the Little Mermaid, but then they've tried to sort of change the formula and do things like, um, you know, Gaston in Beauty and the Beast and and female villains. They're not really sure how to handle anymore. So I wonder if that might be part of the motivation to not go back down the... Um, well, that and the obvious sort of adulterous angles, which I think probably didn't play well with studio hierarchy. But I don't know why we couldn't have had a, vill- a villainous female god, at least, um, doing all these things. But I guess... Well, I can see the ideological objections to that, but you, mm. could, you could have balanced it with Alcmena and indeed with with, with, with Megara. And they're clearly trying. It is 1997, isn't it? Or 1998. Yeah, 97, cl- yeah. Yeah, they're clearly trying to have a feisty heroine, you know, yeah. and she says when when Hercules when she's she's being held by Nessus like um, uh, a figure in, in King one of these girls in King Kong, you know, in his his little his hand, this tiny little figure, and she just says, "I've got this, I've got this sorted," you know, that's sort of wisecracking. They they clearly are are trying to respond to yeah. feminist critiques of uh, uh, portrayal of women in Hollywood. I mean, I don't particularly want a wicked stepmother. I've been a stepmother myself and I've suffered from the, the wicked stepmother stereotype. You know, it, it's very, very prevalent. Mm. But um, I'm unhappy with... Uh, I think kids can cope with things like adultery mm. and bad guys who, who have, you know, bad dads who, by mucking around with other women, actually traumatise their children. You know, I, I think it's, I think mm. it's patronising in some ways. And I think that's... You said right at the beginning of this to how much you liked Greek myth as a kid... And one of the reasons was all those shocking things. Yeah. That you were actually allowed extremity um, in, in the ancient Greek myths. And teenagers and Greek tragedy are such a perfect mix in my teaching experience. I mean, they absolutely want it, you know, told. They want to know exactly the plot of the Oedipus and exactly how many children he had with Jocasta, his mum, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and they want the full-blooded uh, um, dirt, which Greek myth really gives them. Absolutely. And I think the, just going back to that note of, of uh, villainy, I think, I think what, what was surprising watching it this time was how, how long it takes Hercules to sort of become an agent insofar as it seemed that it was interesting. The action was being framed from the villain's perspective. So after that short sort of <laughs> opening sequence that sets out the characters, sets out um, Hercules as this, as this uh, god, you then have um, the introduction of the villain. So you have the introduction of Hades, um, his relationship or his role in all of this. Um, and it immediately sort of, in a way that you don't get, I don't, you know, with Scar or, or Jafar necessarily in, a, in Aladdin, um, you get you get a sort of villainous villainous perspective and then Hades disappears for a long time and you have the ascension to adulthood um yes which, which is which is interesting uh, Hercules goes through he looks a bit like Aladdin at one point and then comes <laughs> out the other end as, as voiced by Tate Donovan so um I thought, thought it was interesting and I've got you know I've got lots of lots of things to say about Hades potential queer coding his sort of lineage with regards to Ursula Scar uh, Governor Ratcliffe from Pocahontas, this sort of vilification, his offsetting against the hypermasculine Hercules, and so Hades, I think, is a really yeah. exciting figure, which sort of makes makes sense, I guess, to to prioritise him towards yeah. the star. I would also say that he is slightly effeminized. Mm. I, think, yeah. I think I think there are kind of nods to the angry hero of, of ancient mythology. Um, his whole shape and the sort of hair, 
there's a few echoes, I think, of precisely those wicked stepmothers and, and so on in, in, in the early Disney and plays off, you're quite right, against this ridiculous yeah. uh, hyper-masculine uh, Hercules who, 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 who um, looks like, what's that cartoon when you've got the family with superpowers? The, um, oh, The Incredibles. He looks like the dad in Incredibles as a young man. You know, the, the, interesting. Yeah, the, the ludicrously wide shoulders relative to the waist and the feet. Did you see the size mm. of his feet? I mean, I couldn't believe it. I'd never noticed that before. He's got feet that are about the size, of the, the length of his shin and more. You know, double the size that they should be, and that makes him look very cultish and sort of adorable. But this is a this is a heroism as well in terms of his masculinity that plays out. You know, he's he becomes a celebrity. We touched a little bit this earlier, but he becomes a celebrity within within the world of the film. So again and 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 it's not that the film is is super reflexive in this way, but the fact that he becomes a celebrity that there is these merchandise what made me think of it was when you said about shoes and I was thinking about the sort of branded hercules shoes um oh, yeah. that we see characters wearing in the film this sort of the fact that that merchandising um is sort of a parody it's sort of I think one of the first parodies of Disney in the popular consciousness is a film like Shrek, which yeah. de- which deliberately took issue with with the sort of Disney aesthetic, but also uh, theme parks and, and all mm. this sort of stuff. This film seems equally, you know, there's a line, he says, I'm an action figure. It seems to parody parody Disney and its merchandising streams and its theme parks, you know, four years before before Shrek. You have the, And it combines it with, um, you know, with an expressionist aesthetic, as you say, this sort of Gerard Scarf style. Um so I think it's it's perhaps a lot more um, yeah progressive or it's a lot more um, interesting visually and thematically than I'd remembered certainly. Um, Meg does a little bit of the, the well the lifting in. The, you, I, I agree with Edith's point about Meg in that she's got that classic sort of eighties nineties problem of of a sort of struggling with how to reconcile feminist critique with traditional representation and models whereby for about 40 minutes she has spirit and independence and agency and then seems to have a lobotomy in the final act and doesn't seem to have a personality anymore i call it the spy as the spy who loved me problem um but yeah well that was never that wasn't that was not sorted till hunger games it, it was it was <laughs> no, sure it, eminently quotable thing to take yeah. from the podcast um wasn't sorted until hunger games yeah. um <laughs> um but but she does express a bit of that anti-disney uh, rhetoric doesn't she i think she doesn't she um look at phil and hercules and call them a couple of rodents looking for a theme park yes like that one. yeah she does but I, I would i would like that to have gone a bit further i mean to, to be honest with yeah. you by making all these jokes about uh having trainers with hercules face on or or, or, or whatever um, it kind of takes the... It's cynical, isn't it? It's saying, mm. actually, that's all nice and cuddly and we can laugh about it. And, and look, looking back at this now, from what Disney's been doing recently in terms of trying to mm. completely monopolise the, you know, the, the whole, whole world of, of, of creative cartoons and creative movies for children and so on, it's, it's kind of sticks in my gullet a bit um, that it's not made a little bit darker i'd have liked these guys to make it it's a bit like the lego movie from that point of view you know you actually want more critique of the capitalist involvement Mm. in uh, you know the commercialization um and and the fact that those very shops i remember vividly uh although i took my kids to disney disney world i was unbelievably shocked by the fact that even when you paid an arm and a leg to go there to paris 
you could queue jump by paying large amounts more money. Mm. And this is much complained about. It's deeply cynical, which meant that if you'd only paid the ordinary rate and weren't fabulously rich on the day, you know, you only got into about four things instead of eight because of the length of the queues. How cynical is that? And the other, I know this isn't meant to be a, a podcast specifically about the uh, economics and, and social conscience of, of Disney. But those but those, th- those very shops it takes the mickey out of mm. are horrors for parents struggling on low incomes. I mean, they're absolute horrors because the kids see these films and, you know, they need to see the films. They're good films and they're cheap entertainment if it's just downloading a cartoon or something. And then they're asked to buy a pair of, of, of ridiculous trainers mm. with... with Actually, it never was Hercules. I never found such a pair, but, you know, with Mickey Mouse on or whatever, mm. that costs £100 or, you know, $150. So I, 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 got, I get uncomfortable when they kind of try to reassure the viewer that that's all wholesome. Yeah, and it's the, it's the, it's the cake-and-eat-it scenario, isn't it? You can yeah. mock the thing, but really it doesn't disturb it. The one um, sequence that I was going to ask you about, Eve, actually, was, and it's about this sort of, you know... Um, as Chris is saying, a lot of it is about myth making, about sort of yeah. you know, com- combining modern celebrity culture with sort of um, hero worship and playing with it in fun ways. There's a scene where Hercules is posing in a lion outfit, yeah. right? And am I right in thinking that is an icon, an, um, a, a moment for, at least from one of the versions of the myth? Oh, definitely, uh, definitely. There, there are there right. are dozens of ancient literary poems that describe him in 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 the the lion skin. He always wore a lion skin on stage. It's always referenced. That's how you knew it was Hercules coming on the stage because he'd got a lion wrapped around his mask, okay, in his club. Yeah. This is this is standard iconography. I once had a, a, a PhD student. You ought to get her on. She's marvellous. She's lecturing classics at uh, Kent now, Rosie Wiles. She did a doctorate all about how in ancient theatre, different heroes got different accoutrements and props and masks. So you could instantly recognise yeah. it. And they've done all the research into, into that. And as I said uh, at the beginning, you can find ancient coins because so many ancient cities were called Heraclea. It was absolutely one of the most common names for a city. It was like calling it Newtown, right? Um, because he was such an extraordinarily popular god all over the Greek and Roman world. So they're all called Heraclea. So all their coins have that very image stamped on it. And that's the kind of intellectual work that the creative team had done that I really, really enjoy and admire because it seems to me that's a way to excite little children about the visual culture of antiquity, which will make it much more likely that they'll choose those kinds of subjects or or do some classical civilization later because they already like them. So that's incredibly Mm. positive educationally. But it also, it kind of educates them twice over because, or excites them twice over because the, because it's Scar from The Lion King. Exactly, exactly. And so it's, it's both a sort of intertextual moment at the same time it's doing exactly what you what you're kind of saying it's playing into the the the, the presentation of the character and and the wearing of animal skins whilst at the same time creating a moment in the film where all child audiences can remember again it's one of its many lion king you know one of these many references to to disney films earlier on in the 1990s but that sort of intertextual moment is a nice and also i think in the lion king himself scar or there's a line of dialogue about how scar will end up being a throw rug which is kind of exactly what happens in this film anyway at one you got a meeting with king augeus he's got a problem with his stables i'd advise you not to wear your new sandals Phil. i told you don't move the daughters of the greek revolution at three, we gotta get a girdle from some Amazons. Mm. Bill, what's the point? 
Keep your toga on, pal. Okay, so this is one of those moments where we pause the podcast um, and stop talking as we were then yes. and start talking live. Well, not live, but we're live. Always, we're always live yeah. and not live. This is it's uh, hard to record in advance of yeah. the moment that you're recording. Sure, this isn't a live stream. No, so, that's um, not what we've paused the podcast to talk to you about. No, though. we have paused the podcast to talk to you um, listeners uh, and potential contributors, actually, um, about the blog element of the website. So if you visit uh, fantasy-animation.org, you'll see that we run a, a weekly blog. So the blog itself uh, pulls in different voices from lots of, of different places, whether you're an animator, creative practitioner, academic, uh, whether you've been to a film festival, an academic conference, uh, whether you are, uh, you know, been to the cinema, seen an uh, animated fantasy television program. Uh, we'd uh, love it could to be an animator who's just produced a new work yes. and wants to talk about it, reflect on it um, creatively. It could, it could be, be um, someone who's trying to get into film journalism who wants to have a go at writing a review. Um, you could just be a fan and love a particular uh, uh, subject matter and you'd always want to talk about it. Yeah, we've had a lot of people kind of get in contact via the website. Um, we have a little comments function, so if you send a little message to us um, with your potential idea, then we'll have a yeah. conversation about commissioning in it. There's a tab, isn't there, at the top that says something like contact us yes. and, and submit form. Click so on you that. can contact us. Uh, and also you can follow us on social media, so give us an at on Twitter or send us a message on Facebook uh, and we'll get in touch. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it would be great to, to kind of publish some of the new work that's being done or, or um, hear from people that perhaps wouldn't have the opportunity to publish elsewhere um get in touch please do otherwise we'll just get back to the show so i also i, I quickly wanted to mention this thing about uh, meg as a character because alex you said that she's sort of you know I, it's interesting because she's she's both really memorable at the start and is this sort of wise cracking cynical sarcastic kind of character um and as you say she retains a myth of post-feminism for about 40 minutes and then it sort of falls away a little bit um and I feel like she's she's you know she's one of a, a group of late nineties Disney essentially Disney princesses without being princesses female love interests that don't then they're, they're the ones that are excluded from Disney's history that it's we're we're not interested in Jane from Tarzan we're not interested in Meg we're not interested um, in um, the, the character of, I can't remember her name now but the princess from uh, Atlantis the Lost Empire um we're not interested in in Esmeralda from Hunchback of Notre Dame it's it's the other ones and so she becomes sort of in this in this narrative of myth making or this narrative of storytelling within Disney's broader studio history female it, you know it, yeah. this film is a reminder that certain characters just get written out yeah and just forgotten exactly exactly I think we should talk a bit about Phil. Oh, well, let's not. We'll, we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll do a later podcast on that. Let's do something else from now. Um, <laughs> yes, we should talk about Phil. How do we make 40 minutes in without talking about Phil? Take it away. Exactly. Okay. Well, see, Philatetes, there's, there's an incredibly bleak tragedy by Sophocles, which is about the close friendship between Philoctetes and Hercules, which is because they both basically die in agony, all right? They suffer terrible pain. <laughs> I mean, they are friends. So when um, Danny DeVito's voice comes in and you know that you're, you've got, you're going to have nothing but wisecracking, in the minute you hear Danny DeVito, <laughs> yeah. and they've even made him look like, at first I thought it was Bob Hoskins, but in fact it isn't. It, it isn't. It, it is, and I wondered whether that was to do with that that rabbit film, the, you know, the cartoon. Oh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. yeah, but no, this is definitely just Danny DeVito doing his wisecracking act, where he's always the sort of number two to a tall, good-looking person <laughs> yeah. in, in 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 the comedies. 
<laughs> but um, I love I love him because he's, he's yeah. Philip Titi's was a was a, a wonderful noble warrior. He certainly wasn't a funny little sort of hybrid animal human thing, and he um, certainly didn't live. I mean, the house is the Hobbit's den, isn't it? I mean, we're not. He, he gets a cave in, in in Sophocles. He lives in a cave for a while, but but not a sort of Hobbit house. And this whole training thing. One of the funniest things to me was the backstory of how what a disappointment Achilles had been, right? That, again, is riffing back to the Iliad um, and the fact that Achilles may have been the greatest warrior and the greatest athlete, but uh, he's so dead, right? <laughs> and one of them, they actually say at one point, Achilles is history, right? <laughs> uh, and I, I, I enjoyed that again. I don't know how far anybody would who didn't have a lot of classical knowledge, um, but it's the fusion of the wisecracker from screwball comedy with the reputation of Danny DeVito and a completely bizarre take on a very serious ancient Greek myth about Hercules' best friend. So Philatetes is a is a character in the original yes. myth. Yes, right. Okay. A very good friend of Hercules, who uh, actually at the end of a play called Philoctetes, um comes down from heaven. He's already dead to actually do euthanasia on Hercules, who's dying in agony. Right. I mean, it's that serious. Okay. okay. So this, for me, is is the darkest humour when when we replace this with uh, basically, you know, Bob Hoskins and a, a, a jock from you know some second rate university. Yeah, with a Susan of Dover, I guess. Um, and, yeah. You know. Um, a little small thing that trains the hero to be extra masculine and muscular. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I guess I mean I would also add to that in the description of Danny DeVito as the as the kind of psychic. Are we saying that Hercules is an unofficial sequel to the 1998 uh, 88 film Twins, where he plays <laughs> Arnold Um I mean, I just, I just, just, I mean, looking back through Danavito's filmography, you know, Junior, Get Shorty, uh, I think Twins is just an interesting group. And also, if you think about the late 1980s and buddy movies and that sort of narrative yeah. structure um, about, yeah, the kind of buddy movie structure that is still quite popular and quite durable, um, this film. And, and many, actually, many popular animations still use that buddy movie structure, um, whether it's, uh, yeah, Toy Story, Woody and Buzz or Monsters, Inc., Mike and Sally. There's, there is that sort of structure that lends itself to um, cross-species conflict or cross-gender uh, conflict or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, the Danny DeVito pairing with, with Tate Donovan, this sort of heroic uh, Hercules figure, is a nice kind of, it structures the middle part of the film and you have that montage training sequence, which is yeah. very rocky, very, uh, you know, sports mm, drama. Yeah. But bringing in, bringing in, in race is really interesting because I'm, I, I, I sense that underneath a lot of the strange coloured skins that gods get and beasts get. We have these hybrid human animal type creatures and they're all sorts of strange colours. And you've got pink gods and blue gods and purple gods and brown gods, you know, they're, they're, they're all kinds of different colours. But where are the slaves? I mean, this is the perennial question with, with, mm. with Hollywoodification of, of the ancient world. The whole point was that Heracles, Hercules was actually enslaved to Eurysius. He had to do their stone labours, which involved unbelievable physical suffering, right, right. Uh, to, okay. in order to be liberated. He had been enslaved. So even if we say it doesn't matter that you haven't got people flogging slaves all the way around the outside of the screens in this kind of film. I mean, it's exactly the same problem in, in, in 300, you know, the, 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 the Persian war movie. That's, you know, 
there were probably about eight slaves to every free individual in any period of classical antiquity. Uh, certainly five to one. They just had to, to get the labour done so that this free class could sit around, you know, having democracy. That was just the way that the econ economics of it worked. Um, should we be protecting children from that? Should we be, because I, I know I, I have African-American friends who object to this, even in the context of ancient Greece, where it's not a matter of uh, dark skins, right? You couldn't spot a slave in ancient Greece just because, uh, or, or uh, sorry, somebody a slave heritage was, it didn't stand out in the same kind of way as it does in America, um, North America. But even so, if you obliterate the reality of slavery in one movie, then it makes it very easy to do that in another. Yeah, actually, but the problem with the film is it goes even further than that, in that um, it's not just that it obliterates slavery, it does um, pertain issues of slavery, but it gives it all to Hades. Yep. Yeah, Hades has this storyline where Meg is enslaved, she has to win her freedom. Yeah. Um, and, and so the film does sort of um, announce these kind of issues of liberation and slavery, but it kind of contains it within the villainous story when actually... Yes. Um, you know, arguably it's it's the heroes that are the slavers in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except that Hercules, part of his tragedy was that he he, he was enslaved and had to win his, he, you know, he became emancipated. That was one of the reasons for his huge popularity in antiquity is that slaves identified with him. You could identify him from every part of the class ladder, every rung on the class ladder, because he had suffered all these ordeals and, and bondage and, and, and so on, as well as being if you were a ruler, a sign of, you know, preeminent potency and, 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 and power. So, yeah, that's me. But I'd, I'd would just like a little bit more uh, honesty as a classicist that when we're dealing with antiquity, we're always dealing with something just as bad as the antebellum South. Always. And it's not that there haven't been plenty of perfectly good movies about that, you know, about <laughs> Kubrick Spartacus, for example. You know, it, it could be done. You could have even had Meg, if you're going to muck around with it, the much they do, you could easily have had a, a, a wife who was actually a slave and he'd managed to help liberate or something. You know, she could have, why not? Or Alcmena and Amphitryon could have been actually enslaved, not just rather happy little peasants. So... That, that that may be me being a bit serious, but I think kids can cope with this stuff. I've had kids <laughs> and they like to contemplate very difficult problems in very safe cultural contexts like ancient Greek myth. That's what, how they like to do it. Yeah. So from what I'm, I mean, maybe this takes us back then to the question of justification yeah. and this layering of stories, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there, there's plentiful evidence that paints this picture of how Disney and the Disney formula is supposed to alleviate and water down and sanitize, uh, quote unquote, his, uh, official historical account. Yeah. Um, and how any, I don't, I don't know, any question of um, historical accuracy is, is always going to come come to, you know, Disneyfication is always a negative. It's never a, a positive thing. It's, it's this translation. Disneyfication is this translation or this transformation of this object um, or source material beyond recognition. But it seems to be the, and this again goes back to what Alex said earlier about the, the instability of the original. The yeah. fact that the original story is this sort of loose constellation um, I just wonder whether that combination of, of the Disney idea, the formula in, yeah. com in combination with, with the original story, both of them need to be equally as flexible and they are, and they sort of, and, and, and Disneyfication, I, I feel, well, I've, 
you know, I've, I'm interested in this idea that Disneyfication could be, heaven forbid, a popular thing. It could be, a, uh, you know, rather than negative word, it could be a popular positive term that we can give the fluency and this interchange or exchange or this reciprocal relation, relationship between, um, you know, it's, uh, the source material and animation. It's not just this assault on on source material. It could be something a little bit more more kind of positive. And a film like Hercules seems to be seems to be one where we can we can at least have a discussion yes. about about stories yeah. and, and, and historical yeah. accuracy and things because like that. I, I get I get the sense of it that it's it's slightly less cynical, you know, that, that there was a genuine reveling, as I said earlier, and pleasure in, in the ancient Greek materials they could use to help certainly the visual aspect of it. This just comes down though to the fundamental ethics of the entertainment industry, the global entertainment industry. Why, you know, for me, why can't someone set out both to entertain and make money mm. and be socially useful and informative? What is wrong with that? You know, there are plenty of good filmmakers who've done that. And I, I would like to feel I would, you know, I would be much, much more, uh, not, much nicer about Disney in general if I felt that they made more of an effort to, to, to provide stuff that mm. parents and children could really mull over afterwards when they've watched it together, you know get into the really, really heavy issues of who's right and wrong and, and, and why were there slaves and, and why did they stop being slaves? That, that's, that, but that's, that's, that's a political position, not an aesthetic one. But I genuinely believe it. things can be profitable, pleasurable and useful at the same time. Sure. I suppose that's the, that's the role or the interesting role played by somebody like Scarf then yes. this you know given that he is he is this illustrator this kind of political mm -hmm. cartoonist um design title sequences for um yes minister and yes prime minister these these sat political satires on television so uh, you know if in many ways if the film backed up its scarfian aesthetic yes. with with something in content yep. or narrative that was equally because uh, you mentioned it earlier this idea of it was an opportunity perhaps to go further but didn't quite yeah. and you wanted to go further I did. um it's 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 sort of a um not a shame but but potentially scarf's involvement in the film suggests a level of sort of satire that perhaps isn't quite um fulfilled in the film yeah and we lose it i mean the whole of the it get like to i actually got but the only bit i get bored in is in the titanomachy is the technical term there is such a thing as the battle of the gods and the giants right and the titans that that is based in in ancient myth but these sort of i think then must be referring to some sort of sci-fi thing i don't know those enormous stone creatures that that are stomping around um that just became boring sort of action spectacle to me yeah. i think we could have made much 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 more of some of the other denizens of hades i mean when they did do cerberus the three-headed dog it was fun so why why do we have to invent those who who are they like they're not that there's some cart uh, action movies which have these enormous rock men in um and it, uh well i my two notes on that the first one would have been the fantastic four yeah um and the kind of rock which which funny enough goes back to our reference to an incredibles earlier a lot of the the, the, yes, fe the features of incredibles you could link onto the fantastic four in terms of flexibility and and that kind of stuff but um the other note i had and it actually goes back to something me and alex talked on the podcast a few episodes ago which is i've, I've just put that big attack on mount olympus is very like dungeons and dragons um, that's the one yeah exactly that's the kind of that's exactly what I think and I, I just found it you know we lost all the wisecracking we lost all the wit we lost all the beautiful Greek artifacts 
and just had a lot of the sort of bludgeoning that I really, really can't stand in, in mm. movies. I mean, it's just boring. I'm not shocked by it. I'm bored by it. So I think they kind of lost Scarf halfway, two, well, two thirds of the way through. Yeah, I agree that sequence is quite um, lacklustre. I remember as a kid actually really enjoying that bit and I was looking forward to seeing it again, but it struck me as a bit um, a bit dull and dud. But but I tell you what, a, a, another moment in the film with monsters that I did really like was the Hydra sequence, which really stuck out as being a sort of startling image. And the thing about the Hydra sequence that struck me, and I'm sure Chris will have more to say about this, is that um, it's, it's rendered through CGI. And this is an interesting period in Disney history in that you've got quite a few films that are using CGI in sort of key moments within the film. So I'm thinking of Aladdin, the Cave of Wonders sequence, or the Magic Carpet Ride. Um, in particular, that's one that always stuck at me, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure there are some throughout a lot of the movies of this era. And and it's interesting because essentially what you've got, and I'm, as I say, this is really Chris's domain, but you've got um, visual effects being used in an animated movie. So in fact, you've got animation as an effect within an already animated movie. Yeah, but that's straight off a vase. That's straight off a really well-known vase. And I said to my, my husband, watch it with me. And I said, they've only given it three heads and then five heads. It's, you know, the Hydra has to have a hundred heads. This is ridiculous. It's a hundred headed Hydra. That's what it's epithetic. And then the wit of it, when he chopped off just the few heads and it sprouted a hundred, Right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Loving, loving engagement. And the actual way that I could actually, if this was TV, show you right now an ancient Greek vase with the identical Hydra on it, with Heracles attacking it. And the Hydra sequence um, goes into, I might be misremembering, but the Hydra sequence, I think, goes into the Zero to Hero musical number. And there's a sort of fade out to vases as well, right? Yeah, that's beautiful, isn't it? That's a mise on a beam, and we call it in literature when you, you get the entire plot told through a small artifact, um, you know, in, in, in the centre of it. It's very clever. It also reminded me quite a lot of um, of Ray Harryhausen, who's a figure we've not talked about yet. There seems to be a sort of, you know, Harryhausen quality to that sequence in that we've got the monster as special effect, um, and again, riffing on ancient Greek. Um, and Roman mythology. Well, it's Jason and the Argonauts, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is Jason and the Argonauts. Um, but there's also some other references. I'm pretty sure um, the, the sort of Zeus statue towards the beginning of the movie coming to life reminded me of, of Hera in Jason and the Argonauts. Um, there's a bit of... Um, there's, a, there's a statue at one point that seems to have the head of Telos, one of the monsters... Um, and then, of course, we've got Pegasus in, in Clash of the Titans. Um, so I think there's there's quite a few. I could probably find a few more if I rewatch the thing. Um, references to Harryhausen. And we can then also see this movie as in that lineage of fantasy storytelling. It's, it's a monster movie. It's a, it's a movie using ancient Greek uh, mythology as the template to make a spectacular monster movie. You could even say the rock titans that I don't, don't like were a bit, a bit like the sewn men, you know, the ones who spring up um, in, 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 in the Harryhausen. But I also think the Olympus scenes, I mean, what I remember from childhood delight in Jason and the Argonauts was, was these gods who would peer down at the earth, right, from this sort of uh, idyllic looking bar, you know? <laughs> Hand, hand each other drink. And I also thought that was a combination of Harryhausen and, 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 and we, you know, these beautiful Olympians looking at this little tiny boat bobbing up and down on the sea with the bar in them, Star Wars. Do you remember? Sort of rather sort of all the great, the grotesque things sitting around all the strange people. I thought there was a bit of that in uh, uh, the Olympus scenes as well. I mean, in terms of the visual effect, the note on the, the Hydra sequence, that is a note that I've got kind of circled and, and, 
and actually, yeah, I think one of the ways that this Disney period, as Alex said, has been defined is is through an increasing use and integration of, of uh, digital effects. And actually, I hadn't thought of the connection to Harryhausen, but yeah, you're right. It becomes it becomes a set piece within that. I think actually, given that the film is largely um, cell animation and uses CG, you know, it falls within this lineage of uh, the ballroom in Beauty and the Beast, the Cave of Wonders and the Magic Carpet yeah. Ride, the Wildebeest Stampede and the Lion King. Um, the uh, charge of the Chinese army in, in Mulan. I think what well, all of those films, all, all those instances where Disney animation is using, you know, it's using digital effects. What it's doing is that it's using digital effects in kind of the same way as both mm. live action films would use animated sequences, uh, but also in the 90s, how live action films would use and try and integrate its digital technology. You know, these are moments that that involve a kind of spatio-temporal disruption of the space. You have characters that are looking. So these films are sort of playing with digital effects by soliciting yeah. that mode of address that suspends the narrative. It's a set piece. We're invited as the audience to marvel at the depth and dimension of the the digital shot. Um, and they're kind of bracketed. And I'm thinking here of writing um, on early visual effects in the early or in the 1990s in, into the early 2000s, um, published by um, Michelle Pearson that talks about how digital effects were always bracketed by formal networks of organisation that created conditions under which the effect would be digested. And actually, it's the same principle in these movies. The digital artifact is being um, intensified or accentuated through the framing, right. through the intercutting between you know, the crowd, the environment, the creature and the subject. So Simba, Hercules, Mulan. Uh, it's the same thing. These are these are surrogate spectators, and I think it's a similar principle when when um, right. Hydra appears and you have Hercules looking up at it. It's you know we're we're looking at Hercules looking at the digital, and I and I quite like that that that, that level of narration. Chris, would you say uh, one of the scenes that fascinated me from that point of view was the dominoes scene when when he knocked over the the one one bit of the temple sanctuary and all those all the white marble columns, you know, we, where does that come from? I mean, it's, it's a really famous sort of uh, trope in, in all kinds of cartoons now where, where, where the, the domino effect happens. But Hercules is watching that with increasing horror as he realises he's not just destroyed one bit of the temple, but the entire sanctuary. Yeah. No, I, I, it reminded me, actually, it reminded me of a digital sequence that often gets forgotten in Aladdin, which is the big ones in Aladdin are the... the um, uh, the cave of wonders and the magic carpet and yeah. the sort of and, and the movement that the, the the carpet makes through the cave of wonders. But there's another one where um, Aladdin gets banished to the ends of the earth, and it take and it basically ruins uses digital technology to take the um, uh, the Sultan's palace and chop off one of the towers, and it and it's then he kind of gets fired off as a rocket, I think, by Jafar to the ends of the earth. Um, and then when Aladdin wakes up in the middle of snow, you have this big digital column that rolls over him and he only just survives and, and the, the digital artifact falls off the edge of the, the kind of cliff. Yeah. Um, but when he's destroying that, because it's kind of like the marketplace, isn't it? That whole kind of surrounding area. Yes. It looked to be digital effects, the way that they kind of cascade, as you said, yes. that domino effect. Um, and the only the only cell animated bit seemed to be at the very very end, where you have the wide angle shot that just that that kind of has that shape of the almost like a keyhole shape that shows them all just lying on the floor. But I think the actual the moment where where it falls um, seems to be digital technology, and I and I do quite like that. The, the way in which cell animation uses digital technology for these moments of effect that that are actually being emphasized in the same way as as the digital might get used in other 
other live action films. But the Harryhausen thing hadn't actually occurred to me. So actually that's mm. that's an interesting footnote to that sort of relationship. Yes. Okay, I'm conscious of time. Um, so Edith, did you have any final um, thoughts on the movie that you'd like to share with us before we, we, we end this session? No, I, I just think, uh, because we've quite rightly been, been thinking an awful lot about what it looks like, I do think it's one of the funniest scripts ever. And I, I, I did, you know, did, did laugh out loud. At, he put the glad into gladiator. At, are you always this articulate? You know, which Meg says when Hercules is just gazing at her like an idiot. Or are you interested in a real estate venture from, from Hades? Or um, uh, that's it, I'm off to Sparta. You know, these are brilliant, brilliant one-line punchline from Struble comedy. Um, and I, I, as somebody who's more, you know, into the literature side of things, I, I, I really think it's a very well-written uh, screenplay. Yeah, it seems to use those historical elements. You say the language and the vocabulary and make these, yeah. make these puns, which obviously is something animation is very good at anyway, visually, you know, the visual pun. Yeah. Um, as you say, like, it, it seems... It seems this is this is how the film, I guess, as a whole then uses and uses up history yeah. and mythology, and it, and it sort of it has those elements and then starts to play with them, and that's maybe why again this question of Disneyfication might yes. be might be something that we can cast in a more positive light. It's it's really the measure um, of the strain or the tension between the animation and the and the source, whatever that might be, and and yes. here it's being measured through the the dialogue, which I think is absolutely absolutely right. Good. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for joining me um, on this one, as always. You are always welcome. Thank you for joining me as well, virtually, um, to talk about Hercules. You can, of course, find us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. It's the same handle now on Instagram, and you can also find us on Facebook. Um, so do check us out. Of course, you can also go on our website, fantasy-animation.org, where you can read our latest blog posts, listen to the backlog of uh, podcasts, um, and do keep sending your suggestions for your favourite feel-good fan anim because we'll try and cover them on future episodes. Hashtag feel-good fan anim or just tag us in social media. Edith, if listeners wanted to find your work, um, if you've got a social media handle, maybe a Twitter handle you could share. It's just at, and then all one word, Edith May, my middle name, Hall. Edith May Hall. Okay, that's great. I um, hope listeners do um, check out uh, your broadcasting and, and academic work. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Take care and goodbye. Bye. Bye. If there's a prize for rotten judgment, I guess I've already won that. No man is worth the aggravation. That's ancient history, been there, done that. Who'd you think you're kidding? He's the earth and heaven.